Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Welcome to another successful fashion designer podcast episode, and today I am chatting with Anna Triant, who owns Anna Triant Couture, which is a fashion company. She makes couture dresses for little girls, and they are gorgeous. They are beautiful. They are handmade and wonderful and so, so, so phenomenal. You guys have to check out the pictures. There's some in the show notes as well as more on her site, of course. And she has a really, really amazing story. Um, Anna immigrated to the U.S. from Russia. She had no fashion background, you know, not a ton of family support. And she really figured out how to do this all on her own with very, very little resources, self-taught in sewing and pattern drafting and fitting and construction, um, figured out, you know, how to sell her product online, how to source her fabrics, all from scratch. And she has done a phenomenal job of growing her brand. Um, quick spoiler alert, we talk about her um, her profitability a little bit later in the episode, but she now supports her entire family. Her husband works for the company and what the company brings in supports her entire family and it all started from her making some dog clothes and tutus that she literally was like tying the tool strings together by hand and selling them on Etsy and she's grown this huge empire so she shares so many great insights and stories and mistakes and things she's learned along the way from sourcing her materials to finding um, seamstresses to sew and work for her and really, really some great advice and a really inspiring story. I know you guys are going to love listening to um, what Anna has to share with us today. As always, thank you so much for listening. Um, before we dive into the interview, I wanted to remind you that SFD is way more than just a podcast. We are a full business that provides you guys with educational resources for getting ahead in the fashion industry, whether that be in your job, in your freelance career, or with your own fashion brand. And I have tons and tons of free content and tutorials on things like Illustrator for Fashion and resumes and landing your dream job and all of this other stuff that you might not know exists because for a long time people were listening to the podcast and they thought, oh, SFD is a podcast, but we do way more than that. And so I want to make sure that you get all those resources in your hands. And the best way to do that is by going to soheidi.com slash email. It's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email and drop your information there and I will hand deliver you the best of my best free stuff. If email is not your thing, uh, definitely give me a follow over on Instagram. I hang out there as much as I can and that is also at soheidi. As always, you can access the show notes by scrolling down wherever you're listening. And now let's jump into the interview with Anna. Welcome to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, Anna. Uh, can you please start by introducing yourself to everyone and letting us know who you are and what you do in the fashion industry? Sure. Thank you for having me. Um, my name is Anna Trantafalo, and I am the owner and head designer of Anna Trant Couture, um, a U.S.-based company manufacturing couture special occasion 
gowns, flower girl dresses, communion gowns for little girls. Um, we sell them online and we also rent them online. Okay. And you have, like, I know a little bit about your backstory from what you messaged me on Instagram. Um, but you are from Russia. You have no background or training or contacts in fashion. And you really started this whole thing from scratch, like by yourself, hand sewing and hand tying tutus, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Can you take us back to the very, very beginning? Yes. When was mm-hmm. that? And what did the beginning of your story look like? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. It was um, in 2010, if I'm not mistaken, that I got my first sewing machine. It was actually my mom's present, birthday present for me. Um, back then, just a little backstory. I lived in downtown LA, fresh from, um, <laughs> like, you know, fresh from the plane um, from Russia. And um, I went to Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising for interior design. I lived right in downtown LA because I didn't have a driver's license or anything. And it was just like literally on the campus of FIDM. Um, And um, my mom knew that I was in the stage of life where I was trying to figure out what it is that I wanted to do because by then I already had a five-year university degree from Russia and uh, it was in philology, world literature and languages. And um, I mean, I I spent five years studying all that only to realize that I really didn't want to have anything to do with any of it. So my mom was, she knew that I... um, I was just kind of experimenting with all the creative things that I discovered that I had in me. I never knew because, you know, growing up in Soviet Union and post-Soviet Russia, it was just kind of like um, you're very limited in uh, different opportunities. It's totally not like in the United States. So for me, it was once I got to the United States and I've seen all these stories of people who really prove and they've proven that you can really achieve anything you want. That's when I actually started um, trying, figuring out what it is that I really want to do. And um, I knew that it had to be something creative. I can't, I get easily bored (laughs) and just any kind of office job is something that I could never hold. I mean, I've, I've had jobs before, obviously, um, even though I was young back then, but um, I just never, I could never stick with anything like that. So um, I tried FIDM and then I, again, I guess I just, I'm, I'm very bad at picking faculties and specializations and everything. I realized that, well, fashion design is not what I want to, well, I mean, interior design is not what I want to do. I wanted to fashion. But by then it was already a year into the program and money spent and invested into it. I couldn't fund more um, into my education to switch to a fashion degree. So, you know, I was just kind of forced to adjust to the situation. And I decided, well, I can do it myself. I just need lots of time and lots of patience and lots of books and YouTube videos. And I'll teach myself how to sew and use that very basic sewing machine that we got from Sears back then. (laughs) And that's when it was, Like, really, that was just, you know, the embryo of my business. It was 
uh, I never had these big plans of starting some type of an online dress empire or anything like that. I just wanted to do something that I really, truly loved, um, to, to do something that set my soul on fire. And I figured fashion is what I really wanted to do. I mean, I didn't know what kind of fashion. So I started with pet, like pet fashion for little dogs because it, back in um, 2010 in LA, I, I've seen lots of people with their little tiny teacup dogs dressed in all these cute outfits. So I was like, well, that's pretty easy to start with. And um, I mean, it doesn't really take a whole lot of time from you know the start to finish. So that's what I focused on in the beginning. Um, but then when I had to move from LA and I picked Texas out of all places, I mean, there people would look at me with wild eyes, like you make clothing for dogs, but why? Like, it's so hot here. Nobody needs clothing for dogs (laughs) or accessories for dogs. It's just, it's hot to the point your, your eyes are melting. Nobody wants to dress dogs. So, I mean, at that point I was like, yeah, maybe I need to kind of reconsider my client (laughs) and switch to something more realistic. And that's when I decided I'm going to start figuring out how to do something for actual humans, little humans, little girls. And that's how I um, turned to making tutus. But like my very first garments for humans (laughs) were like, the most basic tutus you can find is the ones that you don't even actually require any sewing. You just cut a bunch of strips of tulle and tie them around elastic or a ribbon, and then it just wraps around the waist and ties into a bow. Yeah. I mean, but that's that's all I could do at that point. And then the more um, the more things I've learned, the more techniques I tried, the more fabrics I tried working with, um, the more I you know, I started growing the different, um, the scope of garments that I was able to make. But it really took me probably two years since the moment I got the sewing machine to to the moment where I actually made my very first dress for a little girl. And that was the most exciting moment of my life. Yeah. (laughs) It it looked really nothing like what I make now. But to me, back then, it was such progress because I could never even dream that I could make something with my hands that that I could put on a child and it would look actually well quite decent I mean not perfect by any stretch of imagination but it it was okay and not only was it okay it it started actually selling in my little Etsy store um so I that was just the proof that I needed that I'm doing something that has hope and potential. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, I want to know just really quickly, cause you and I were chatting briefly before we hit record, you have, uh, one son, <laughs> not a daughter. Yes. And so where did you get no. the inspiration <laughs> to make little tutu dresses for girls? I think, you know, to be completely honest, I think I design for the little girl that I used to be and the little girl who um, had to go through so much pain and so much trauma when she was growing up. She, um, well, she as me, <laughs> um, 
you know, it was just really tough growing up in the family that I was born into, but you can't pick that side. So, I mean, I, I survived and, um, I think I was just really, um, my whole life, I was just really sorry for the innocence that was taken away way too early and just all of that. And, um, I think designing for little girls was just a very natural thing for me to do because I was designing for me, little uh, me. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so okay. I was really upset at first when I found out that I was pregnant with a boy. I mean, I <laughs> probably cried for, <laughs> for two weeks, but then, I mean, of course, when once he was born, it was love at first sight and everything. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I never really actually got to have a girl. <laughs> okay, so you, you're you designing kind of for your own self, which is such a cool story. And she said about two years into the, having the sewing machine, you had the first dress that you could put on a little girl. And you said you started an Etsy shop. So I'm curious about those early days of selling your product and what that looked like. Because I think that's a, a big barrier for a lot of people, right? Maybe they're um, and things have changed now from 2010, 2012 to here we are 2020. But, um, tell us a little bit about how you kickstarted that growth to, to start selling your product and get word out there about your brand. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I actually started a website of my own was because nowadays and even back then it was so easy to just, um, open up a shop with like Squarespace or WordPress or whatever. And uh, I figured out how to do that. But I mean, there's no traffic. Nobody knows about who I am and how do I compete yeah. with all these massive amounts of um, stores and boutiques and shops and mainly Etsy. How do you do that? So I figured, well, even though they charge um, per transaction and whatever it is, but for exposure, for the sake of exposure and getting my name out there, I, I was able, I was willing to put up with all of those things that <laughs> Etsy sellers have to go through. And that, I mean, that's that can get pretty ugly. I mean, there were a lot of um, areas where I was just praying for the day to come where I can cut ties with Etsy because of how some customers feel like it's okay to treat their the sellers and all the the whole feedback, um, the the fact that they that any customer can come into your store and leave feedback and try and extort something from you, um, like possible discounts or I mean sometimes even free stuff so that they can go in and change their feedback to some to a higher rating. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff like that happens, and mm. it wasn't. I'm not saying that. I wouldn't recommend people, uh, beginners, to start with Etsy. I think it's a great place to start Um, if they focus on making sure that their images are well lit and stand out and somehow like professionally made, even though, I mean, it doesn't, you don't need a professional photographer to make um, a good looking picture. Uh, And nowadays with the phones and with all the different apps that, I mean, I do everything on my phone. I take pictures of my dresses even now, the product shots, everything is on my phone and all of the editing tools, everything. So you can make your store look professional 
with very little. And Etsy does the whole, you know, SEO and everything else for you. So you don't really have to worry about um, getting the, I mean, getting found on Google and stuff like that. And for me, it was very hard when I was starting out was the competition because I didn't know how to source, like where to source my fabrics. I mean, I had no experience. I was literally learning how to live in a different country. I didn't know um, how this whole online sourcing, fabric sourcing works. I didn't, I didn't know any of this. So to me, what do I know? Where do people go for fabrics here in the United States? They go to Joanne's and they go to Hobby Lobby. So I'm just going to go and do that. And um, obviously with their massive markups, I mean, I think it's like 400% markups. There's no way that I can compete with people who use wholesale tool and like wholesale supplies when I make uh, tutus out of, Till I get at Joanne's. I mean, but just my initial investment is four times more than what what they're using. So if to me it was like, how much are they actually charging per hour for their labor? Because I can never meet that that kind of a price range. I mean, it's just not. It doesn't even cover the cost of my supplies. So that's where the initial struggle. Like, just I would recommend people to learn about sourcing their supplies first and foremost this is the most important thing and then think about pricing your um your product the right way i mean it's it's a very you have to get paid you have to um make a living and you don't you shouldn't feel bad about it i mean we all have to survive somehow to put ends need and stuff so i, I mean and do some research on how to price that right maybe in the beginning it could be a little bit less than um eventually but uh, you still have to pay yourself enough yeah to make it worthwhile yeah so how did you figure out the sourcing for your materials i mean yeah right you can drive down to the joann's in your neighborhood but yeah it's super expensive so what did you do to figure out well how do i get these at wholesale what does this look like did you go online and what did that process look like for you yeah It was a long process. I mean, it took me, um, I think, probably eight years to get to the point where I am today, where I have um, a sturdy, I have a very trusted fabric dealer is what I call this this little, this girl in uh, over overseas in China. And she does all of the um, fabric sourcing for me in, in there, all of the stuff that I can't get in the United States. I try Mm. to do my best to source what I can in the United States, such as like nylon chiffon. There's the place for that and all of those. But, um, you know, to get to that point, I had to make a whole bunch of mistakes. Like, well, I just, one day I Googled, um, wholesale tool, for example, um, because that was my main source. And there's all these places, but then what I didn't realize that, um, Tool is not the same everywhere, and tool that you use for garments is not the same as craft tool. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when you look at it online, you just you wouldn't know, and nobody mentions that. I mean, unless you actually in that industry for a while and you you learn about all of the 
um, specifics of children's um, fashion. I mean, you wouldn't, how do you learn about this? So um, I tried all these places where you can get like a whole bowl of tool for $5, right? I mean, it's like 40 yards of tool for $5. And I was like, oh my gosh, this cuts um, my initial investment into the uh, tutu and then or into the dress so much. But then I started noticing, well, the quality is just not the same. And then um, what if... What are what else is out there, and why this place online sells it for so much more expensive than this place? And so I started looking more into it. And what actually happens is that um, there there's a, there are U.S. manufacturers who do um, who go through all these stages of um, flammability certification and all of that stuff. I mean, I don't really. Um, know the technical words for it but they test all of their materials and they make them appropriate for use on a children's garment or any kind of actual wearable garment versus other places that they are craft tool but they just call it tool and so you don't know what's the difference so it's like I had to learn all of these uh, things by making all these mistakes but eventually I think keeping the quality in mind as my ultimate goal and keeping my clients' needs in mind. That's how I I, I was able to kind of sort, sort through all of the um, not-so-good uh, sources for fabrics and just a lower-quality fabrics and actually settle on something that works and something that's safe um, for the kids to wear and something that's not just going to catch on the fire just like that mm-hmm. if they... It, you know, you have to hold a candle in church or something. I mean, those are things you have to think about when, when you make something that a child is going to wear. It doesn't matter if it's your child or not. <laughs> so if you, so knowing what you know now, if you could go back to when you were first sourcing the tool, like you said, you bought 40 yards for $5, but it was low quality craft tool. Um, going back in time, what what advice would you give your younger self at that stage? Because I think a lot of people out there listening might be in a similar stage and maybe they're not looking for tool, but they're looking for something. Um, what could you have done differently to, to made that process a little bit easier on yourself? Um, well, I think I would, I think I would tell myself to, to actually start with educating myself what kind of fabrics you can and cannot use for um, children's clothing. And then I probably would tell myself to um, uh, not be as focused about cutting the cost of um, supplies to meet, um, to just kind of like be on the same page with the competition on Etsy who uses craft tool, just, mm. I would tell myself, you don't have to be like that. You don't have to use cheap tool in these like just primary colors. You don't have to be like them. It's okay to try something else. It's okay to look elsewhere and it's okay to even try outsourcing because to me, when I was starting the business, I really wanted to keep everything in the United States. I mean, use U.S. materials. I mean, I just, you know, I love this country so much because of it's what it's given to me. And and um, I consider myself 
more American than I am Russian, even though I don't really even have the proper citizenship or anything. But I, I always wanted to keep it in the U.S. and use U.S. materials. But the problem is that there isn't a lot of variety, or maybe I'm just not, I'm not looking at the right places, not a lot of variety that can compete with what you can get in China. And because my the customer will always consider the price um, also, I mean, obviously they take that into consideration. If I make everything um, out of U.S. made fabrics, I think I'm just not going to, um, it's just going to be a little bit more um, expensive than my my clients would expect from me. So, I mean, in it, it, I would say to myself, it's okay to look elsewhere. It's okay to look abroad and um, in China for, or other like or in India. It's fine to figure those things out and and uh, reach out to different sellers and just kind of trust your intuition. Who is who? You know, who is okay to work with and who isn't? I mean, there's a whole. <laughs> It's, I mean, it took me years working with sellers on AliExpress and Al- Alibaba to actually find the trusted person that I work with now. I mean, it's going to take, nothing's going to happen overnight. You're going to have a lot of mistakes along the way, and it's okay. Yeah, I love that you say that, and I think it's so true. Like, as much as we can look back and say, okay, well, what would you have done differently? Yeah, there's some lessons you learned, but sometimes building those relationships with your key suppliers, whether that be your raw material suppliers or the people who are cutting and sewing your product, um, your factory, what have you, it does, it takes time to find the right match. It's like finding a partner for life oh, yes. or finding a best friend, right? It, it just, it takes time. You have to weed through some people to find the best match for you. Um, and, and so it sounds like, absolutely, yeah. So you went to AliExpress and Alibaba and you had good luck with that. And you've now got a great person that you've worked with, but it's taken years. Um, (laughs) tell us. Well, yeah, I mean, I I had good luck with that. Yeah. It's a little bit of a stretch. I had good luck with that. There were a lot of times when I was completely ripped off and I had to, (laughs) I was about to just rip my hair out dealing with some of those sellers. But yeah, eventually it brought me to where I I needed to be. So yeah, I mean, overall it's a success. (laughs) Could, is there anything you could have done differently to maybe have learned some lessons on not getting ripped off? Because I know that's something people are really, really weary of, especially when you start going overseas and you're working with people in a different country. And it just feels like a physical disconnect that I think people get really nervous. Yeah. Yeah, And that's totally understandable because I mean, we, (laughs) knowing how much China sellers rip off designers all over the world. I mean, it's kind of, it's very difficult to build that trust, you know. But I mean, I think the way I used to shop, I figured I need to check their um, feedback and their rating. Every store has um, a rating there. And if, and I set a rule to myself, if no matter how much I love the fabrics and I just get, I'm a total fabric addict. And if I see something that I love, I just have to have it. But no matter how much I want it, I'm going to check the the uh, store overall rating. Like there's a percentage, how much of 100% um, feedback they got. And yeah. like, if it's below 95%, I would just not do it. And AliExpress they give you a lot of tools how to look for something 
exactly like that, just by picture, kind of like Google search, Google image search, but mm-hmm. within that system. So you can find other places who sell the same thing and hopefully they'd have a better um, rating from customers. But you have to check that feedback because usually if you trust someone who doesn't have all that great of, of customer feedback, it well, I mean, it just happens it just means that something like that happened before. They didn't deliver yeah. or they delivered something completely different than what you ordered. And then because it's because of the shipping back and forth, to ship back that fabric and tell them, look, this is not what I even ordered, it's gonna t- it's gonna cost you probably more than what you actually spend on the fabric. Yeah. So you just give up and that's what they hope for. Yeah. That's unfortunate. And sometimes I do think those are just lessons we all have to kind of learn for ourselves. But that's some great advice to really pay attention to the ratings, no matter how much you like the fabric. Um, and just know that if you see some, if you see a red flag in the ratings, then it's probably going to happen to you. Um, right. So, okay, so you were on Etsy. And I mean, you know, I'm, I've seen your website now, and it is light years beyond selling one, two, three dresses on Etsy. I mean, you have a huge assortment of (laughs) designs and you rent gowns. And just for people out there listening, in case they don't go to your website, your, your dresses range from four or $500 to over a thousand dollars. And they're beautifully made Mm -hmm. and you have a ton of different styles. um, And you have this whole rental program, like bridge the gap between Etsy and where you are now, I mean, it, it seems to be a big jump. And so it sounds like, okay, you got your fabric sourcing under control, but then what? Like, how did you take the next incremental steps to get to where you are now? Um, I think it was, um, it was really a matter of necessity to save my sanity. <laughs> I had to leave Etsy because of... <laughs> um, just how unfair it can be to to the sellers and customer is practically always right and I mean yes it should be that way maybe but to a degree when when you have proof that somebody is literally extorting trying to extort something from you and get services back um, for free in exchange for better feedback or something I mean that's just it's it makes it not worth it I did not care um how much how how much of a drop I will see in my sales if I if I just switch to a website, but I mean I think what helped me a lot to do the switch and walk away from Etsy completely was that I've worked really hard on expo- social media exposure so that I don't have to rely so much on. SEO and just people actually finding me through Google search, mm. but actually put my name out there so that they see me on, see my gown on Facebook, someone else is using it in their photography, for example, or whatever. And they go, the the traffic is directed from social media versus just a Google search. So yeah. that's, that's how, um, and I, I, well, and it was an investment because initially, well, nobody knows you and they, they won't be spreading your name around like that. You have to actually put yourself and put your product in the hands of those photographers and whoever, whoever else. So my, my concept was that um, 
I'm going to put, well, my first goal was to actually put the dresses on little girls so that I could see for myself what they look like. Because I mean, when you're just uh, sewing from a flat pattern and putting it on a mannequin and have no idea what if it's uncomfortable, whatever it is, like I just needed actual feedback from someone who is not paying me, just honest feedback of how it fits, how it looks. So I started sending out these dresses that I would make, all these samples for free to photographers to little uh, child models there's a whole industry I find out that um, um, specializes in children children as models for different boutiques and stuff like that so I would send them the garments and um, it would be like a barter exchange you get the gown and I get the pictures Mm. so they keep the gown as compensation so I mean it was a lot of just investment like that that's um well I make a dress I don't get to keep it or sell it but I get to somewhat like I get to have images and then hopefully promote it online on social media and stuff like that um it was it took um years I mean I think it took at least three or four years of working like that basically for free and giving up Um, the product that I was making but I mean back then also it wasn't the guns weren't as um, complex they were um, less detailed and there was no not a lot of hand beating it was a little bit more basic but I mean still it it was my labor that I put into it and I would be okay exchanging it for um, pictures and I mentioned somewhere on somebody's um, social media account. Yeah. And so can I ask, how were you funding all of this? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Um, There's the funding happens naturally. I don't, I never got a loan from a bank or anything. Um, On in the first initial stages when my, my husband and I started dating. It was literally, um, I had to make a choice whether today I'm going to buy myself dinner or if I'm going to go and buy a bolt of fabric. I mean, it was, it was a struggle. It was a struggle for a very, very long time because I wasn't ready to be, um, up to my eyeballs in debt for something that I really didn't know if it was going to work or not. And, um, um, I wasn't thinking about it like, well, I'm going to get a bunch of this debt. And then if it doesn't work out, I'll just file for bankruptcy or something like that. I'm not, I'm just, I'm, I think (laughs) my feeling of being responsible for if I borrow money, then I have to give it back. Then I was just like, well, if little by little, I can invest something else and something else and next day a little bit more then. It should be, it should work. And then eventually it actually did, but there was no guarantee. Yeah. Okay. So you just took time and you kind of scrapped it together, skipping one meal at a time per se. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Not eating. We'll get back to this episode in 20 seconds, but real quick, did you know that the SFD podcast is sponsored by you? We don't interrupt your listening experience with ads and instead rely on your support. There are three ways you can do that. One, tell a friend about the podcast. Two, sign up for the email list at soheidi.com slash email. That's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I dot com slash email. 
Three, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for supporting the SFD podcast. Now back to the episode. Um, okay, so you're building your social media, you're off of Etsy, you're giving away dresses for free to get photos, and then hopefully those photographers also share and come back to your social media. And some of these things must have worked because you have almost 100,000 followers on Instagram. It seems like you've got a really, um, like, core group of people that love your product, almost like a little cult following. Um, What happened between selling them or excuse me giving them away for free to get the photos and to build the foundation and to build a name for yourself um and you said the dresses were a little bit less complex or maybe quite a bit less complex than they are now i mean you know i look at some of these photos online they're very very detailed um what happened between then and and where we are now and were you even selling anything at that point or were you just kind of like trying to still build this foundation for your name oh yeah i was selling and i i, okay. I started selling pretty well back back when I was on Etsy okay. um, um I um I mean it, apart from just like growing um Facebook and Instagram I was Pinteresting a whole lot and uh. not just like you know Pinteresting for inspiration I was pinning my dresses like there was no tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> and um somehow I mean and I always, I, I used to make sure to always put a gigantic watermark somewhere close to the dress so that people would see it and they would hopefully Google it and then maybe either start following or start, um, I mean, I don't know, buying, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it was, um, I think also I have to mention that um, the um, social exposure it really helps that my the majority of my clients are business owners. They are photographers who actually who also have um, some presence online. So anytime they share, it's just kind of like you know there's a domino effect. Uh. You you make something for them. They have their little group of followers. They love the dress, and then they start sharing. And so it's just like. I don't ever invest into advertising or, well, you know, any kind of bump my post on Facebook or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think it's pointless at this point. But just this, um, what's it, like, you know, spreading the word through your customers and um, who are also business owners. I mean, that's how it grows into this huge amount, huge following that I could never imagine that I could get to (laughs) yeah so and at this point are you still hand making everything yourself no actually that's um I well okay I I have to say I do make a whole lot of um of the dresses but I am not a sole maker anymore and I um I actually had I had to outsource and hire a contractor um Back six years ago, because at that point I had, um, my son was 12 months and um, it was just getting a little bit out of hand because I was a mom first and foremost. And, you know, that that the lifestyle of I'm going to take care of my son from the moment he wakes up to the moment he goes to bed. And then my actual working shift starts till, I mean, I don't know, four or five 
a.m. in the morning, that just wasn't, it wasn't going to last long. Yeah. I wasn't going to last long. So I had to find um, someone to, um, to hire. And um, I still work with that contractor, even though I moved from Texas and we're now in Tennessee, I, it, I still work with her and she's amazing. But then over the years, I, I hired um, two more girls. Well, there were some, some seamstresses that were kind of temporary. We would just hire them during busy, busy seasons, but, um, three are, um, my longest, um, helpers and they are my team. And I love my team because I know how important they are to the business. I could never do this myself. Um, and now that, you know, all of these, shifts are happening in employment because of the virus and everything we decided well let's let's see if we can expand the team even more and offer jobs to people locally and i've always wanted to have someone local so that all the hand beating of the final product like my seamstresses can help me actually build up the dress from uh, just a bolt of fabric to actually looking like a dress, but all of the finishes, adding all of the horse hair braid trims and all of the beading and bows and all of that, that's on my shoulders. So I, I really wanted to hire someone local who could come into my design studio and just work alongside with me. And oh my gosh, thank goodness, three weeks ago, I hired and she I hired a lady. Her name is Anna, and she is also from Russia. So Whoa. it was just like, <laughs> what? How does it even happen? <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. And we are currently in the process of um, hiring a couple of more um, out-of-state um, contractors. It's really, I, I don't think the huge amount of styles that I have in the variety of orders that we work on on a monthly basis, it doesn't allow me to actually go to um, like a manufacturing company and say, okay, well, I need like a hundred dresses of this style because all of the styles are so different. And we also offer custom fitting, like, uh, you know, a customer would send a bunch of measurements, uh, a list of measurements, and we would make the gown to fit exactly if wow. they choose to do so. So yeah. it's like it's I don't know how it can how I can scale it. And I wish I could figure out a way to scale it, but still keep it in the United States. I mean, that's my ultimate goal. I just I don't know how successful it's ever going to be, but hopefully I'll get to the point where um, I can stop making and doing so much. I mean, I technically, there's not a single gown that goes out of my studio without me doing something with it. Like, either I'm cutting for it or I'm make, adding trims or adding decorations or beading or something. Yeah. And I just really want to get myself out of this chain a little bit further so I can focus on other things business related yeah or maybe only other things that only you can do like other people can do the product but there's things that you your time perhaps could be um, more valuable valuably spent on um where did you find all these yes um, i mean I've, I've, go ahead yeah. well i was i just wanted to mention that um 
I've wanted to to learn properly, sit down and learn um, fashion sketching for the longest time. But because my days go by so quickly with always being busy with work, with something. And I mean, it doesn't matter if I don't take vacations, holidays or anything like that, like a normal human. I, it's still packed to the brim. I don't have I, don't, I can't carve out this time to learn something I really want to learn, which is fashion sketching, or take care of making tech packs for all of these things. I mean, mm. there's a lot of little things that you, the client won't actually, our customers won't see that it's happening, but it's something that's good for the business on the inside of it. Or really, <laughs> I would really want to sometimes take a break and spend time with my kid. <laughs> but it's really hard to get that time. Yeah, no, it, you, you sound like you juggle so much. Um, where did you find these people to help, these these contract seamstresses that you have working with you? Where do you find them? It's, um, I would um, make a, a job, job post on um, um, Indeed, and I think one of them I found through ZipRecruiter maybe or something like that. Oh, wow. uh, one of the uh, job career websites. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's worth it. I mean, you have to go through a lot of applications with people who think that they are qualified, but they don't have like proper, um, sewing experience or even sewing equipment. So like you have to sort, sort through a lot of, um, candidates, but, magic happens. I mean, when you find someone, I hold on to my seamstresses and because my team is most important and I just, um, <laughs> I won't let them go unless like I will clutch onto them because it's so hard to find talented seamstresses. I, I don't know. I, maybe they're just hiding. Maybe I'm not looking in the, in the right spot, but they just really hard to yeah. find. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you found them through like very traditional job posting sites like Indeed. I mean, it's so I just wouldn't think of those sites as finding um, that type of talent. But that's really amazing that you've able you've been able to do that. Um, and I think, like you said, there's a lot of value in just vetting. Well, the right I've tried team. other yeah. places. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I've tried. Um, you know. Um. Sorry, uh, things like um, Upwork and, and places like that. But it's just like, I think it's more, it works more when I need something digital done um, or, uh, you know, even like a, for, t for a tech pack or something, um, which I mean, I really don't have much of a tech pack um, collection. It's really, I just write handwritten notes to my seamstresses, like this is go, this goes here yeah. and this, you need to make it this way and put it this way. Yeah. I and mean, it's really, it's a little ridiculous. I know I have to kind of uh, sort this through and organize it somehow, but for right now it's individually for each and every dress, there's a note with instructions, what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> But yeah, um, I've tried places like Upwork, but it's just not. Sorry, can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, 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 it's good. Sorry about that. Um, the those places like Upwork, they just weren't very. Um, I didn't get much luck with actual people who would sell, um, like a, on a contractor base. Okay, gotcha. 
How did you, I mean, you said you started watching a bunch of YouTube videos and stuff, but how did you like really learn the intricacies of sewing and specifically fitting um, and construction and like how the dress should go from fitting a size 2T to a 4T or like how, how things should grade and all of that. Where'd you learn all of those skills? Uh, well, <laughs> from a lot of books um, on the subject, a lot of, um, you know, just researching and different uh, reading through different blogs, and then also just uh, looking at how other patterns are graded. Yeah, like if you okay. just basic patterns, flat patterns that you can get at Joann's, just see how they're graded and what the concept is, and just kind of follow the same idea. Okay, gotcha. I love that, that you just kind of like winged it and figured it out um, using the resources that were out there. Um, <laughs> so I have a question about, so you're, um, you guys, everything is custom made or rentals, is that correct? Yes, and our rentals usually, um, well, some, what sometimes what happens is that when I design a new collection for the next season, or we don't really have like traditional collections, yeah. and then like you 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 get get out um, fall winter twenty twenty, and then it's gone, and then something else comes in. I just add little um, new styles to kind of build on what's what's already what we already have in the store because those those classic styles i'm not just i'm not willing to let them go and i try to keep most of them in store and available for purchase but every season when i add on something something new those um new additions go for rent so that i don't i mean so that it doesn't just hang in my closet ah. i put them to you to good use and then all of those pieces that are rentals that's how we build up the collection and then sometimes customers depending on what they really love like there's a particular style that they um that's really sought after um i try and add that um for in sometimes but it's just there's just so much work that needs to be done on um purchased order orders that rentals are just kind of if I can humanly do something else and add something else to it I, I will but it's I, w I don't want to say it's an afterthought for me not by any stretch of imagination but it's just not the main uh, focus of the business the main focus is what we sell um, to our clients okay the rentals is secondary yeah Okay. And it sounds like almost it's a way to test new styles. Like, let me make one and then rent it and see what kind of feedback I get. And does this make sense to add into the for sale collection? Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And it's, um, it's also a good, um, a good way to gauge, um, what audience thinks about that dress. Yeah. I mean, once it gets into, um, rentals and it's, a lot more um, affordable. I mean, <laughs> a lot more affordable. It's also like a stretch. I mean, it's not twenty dollars to rent those dresses, but still, it's more uh, within reach to rent it. And so people will start sharing feedback. Well, I love this, but I well, this doesn't didn't really fit well. Um, and I'm always open to constructive criticism. I love getting feedback and making adjustments so that our next product in that style uh, in that um, in that style looks better fits better 
and just works better generally for the client. Yeah. So like my first thought with some of um, these items is, you know, I mean, I have a four-month-old son right now, and obviously when they're that little, they grow a lot faster than they do when they're, you know, three or five years old. But um, still, kids grow really fast, and things don't fit them very long. And so I look at this, and I'm like, wow, you know, it's six, seven, eight hundred, a thousand dollars for a dress. And for some people, that's in a in their budget for a special occasion, um, or maybe you know, not even a special occasion; it's just in their budget. Um, but is there a big um, resale market for your products? And is that a problem for your business? Like, you know, I buy this dress, my daughter wears it to be a flower girl, or, you know, I'm not sure what some of the other occasions are that people wear these, um, that these kids wear these dresses. Um, and then they are like, oh, I'll just sell it on eBay or Craigslist, or I don't know, something. But is that a, a big market? And does, it ha- does that interfere with your business at all? No, I actually make sure that I help those people and I help them sell their gowns in uh, in my official Facebook group. Oh. We have a Facebook business page, but there's also a, um, on a trend couture official Facebook group, and that's that's that has about close to eleven thousand people, and those are for the most part customers who have either rented or bought the dresses or interested in buying one. And this is the place where people can bring their rental uh, used gowns and sell them. And actually, I I think one of the most important things that sets our, our dresses apart from other designers um, that are my immediate um, competition or whatever considered my immediate competition is that our gowns hold the value very well because well first of all it's quality and secondly people always know that there's a very very long lengthy wait time between the day that they place the order and the day they actually get it because we're so small and the manufacturing process is so intense and lengthy and um, you know just there's just so much detail that I put into each dress. So it's 16 week production time. So let's say you come today and purchase a dress and you have to wait 16 weeks at least Four to months. get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that, and, and that brings us to the, the resale um, question. That's, that's why people who already have those dresses, they wore it for an occasion or a photo shoot. And then they, they, I invite them. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with them coming to my Facebook group and reselling those same dresses, um, to people who, well, I really, I hope that they go down in price a little bit versus what they can be uh, purchased in store just to make sense because you've you use that gown and, and you just I mean to me personally that's how I would do it like if I was selling a used dress I mean I would go down in price a little bit but it doesn't always happen but it's none of my business I try to stay out of it <laughs> so they sell the, the, the dress and then somebody uh, is looking for something in that size and they snatch it and they don't have to wait 16 months 16 weeks so wow, that's I mean so it's, cool. it kind of works for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool that you support that aspect of the business. I love that. Um, can you just share yeah. a little bit about, like, and you don't have to share numbers or you can or whatnot, but um, 
Like, when did you actually become profitable? I I know, like, with businesses like this, I think at, at, for a lot of time, when you're building, the business is just kind of, you know, first you start skipping dinner to buy the fabric, and I've been there, believe me, um, and then the business starts supporting itself, but all the sales go back into buying more materials and, you know, getting photos and whatever the expenses are that are associated with a business, a fashion business. Um, and then at some point, and it's usually longer than we like to think it's going to be, um, we actually start making money where I can pay myself a paycheck and I'm actually making money off of this. Um, can you share a little bit about your timeline with that? Sure. Um, I, I'll be honest, <laughs> I'm the worst when it comes to finances, <laughs> and that's that's why I'm so blessed to have my husband manage all of that, because I'm um, I'm just the wrong person to talk about things like that. I don't, I, you know, it's like I'm the type of creative person who, I'm not necessarily in the clouds, but I, do, I look past the price tags. <laughs> so um, I think... Um, if I'm not mistaken, I I may be, but I think it was probably 2000, 2014, no, probably 2013. My, my, I, I just remember it by the stages of uh, my son's life. Okay, like when yeah, he yeah, yeah. <laughs> was two years old, I think I was starting to make um, a, a good amount of money. So uh, yeah, 2013 is when... Um, it, it was, it became profitable, but on a very small scale. And then, um, 2015 is when, um, yeah, it was, it was actual noticeable profit that could support our family. And then, um, later on we came to a point and a decision with my husband that he, quit his corporate job and he focused on helping me with the business so it became profitable enough to replace both of our income like wow. both incomes in the family so this is the only income that we have yeah. and congratulations he technically it works for me but thank, yeah thanks that's thank amazing you. I never I never imagined that this could happen but yes I I'm, I sometimes still pinch myself that <laughs> we are where we are yeah that's amazing congratulations and actually that is um, that timeline is 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 pretty impressive. All in my humble opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, this has been so much fun to chat with you and hear about how you've built this. Um, honestly, this this empire it's really really impressive, and your designs and gowns are beautiful. Um, we'll definitely include some pictures in the show notes, but we'll have a link to your website as well. And so everybody. Definitely go check out what Anna's doing and follow her on Instagram because not only design-wise, but I think business-wise, there's a lot of inspiration to be taken from what you've done. Um, on that note, can you share where everybody can connect with you online and on Instagram? Sure. Um, uh, our retail store is www.anatredcouture.com. Uh, we rent at anatriant.rentals. And then um, we are at Anna Trend Couture on um, Instagram and um, Anna Trend Couture on Facebook. But uh, most of the fun stuff on Facebook happen in our private group, Anna Trend Couture official Facebook group. 
Okay. Well, we will link to all of those in the show notes so people can get access really easily to everything that you're doing. And I would love to end the interview with the question I ask everybody at the end, and that is, what is one thing about working in fashion that people never ask you, but you wish they did? You know, Heidi, I've listened to your podcast enough times, and I know that <laughs> this was the question, but it's really... I think that um, I wish I was asked about the sacrifices that being a fashion printer takes. Oh. I mean, a lot of people still think that I look at pretty fabric swatches and beads all day and with a sketch pad in my hand and just dream up pretty gowns that are made by someone else, not me. But the reality of my job is that you know, it gets really tough some days on all kinds of levels, on personal and, and like emotional level and just physically it's draining. And, um, but the <clears throat> sacrifices that we make as artists, even when you have to share something on social media, it takes so much courage that people don't really, um, you don't really see that you will like it's it's fun and everything to look at pretty pictures on Instagram and scroll through all that but the amount of courage and vulnerability it takes for an artist to put something that they created out there for the world to see and judge because everyone has an opinion mm -hmm. and everyone <laughs> wants to share it i mean and everyone thinks that they are obligated to correct you if they if they think you're doing something inappropriate i mean this is a daily sac sacrifice and there's just so many other things. And I wish that people talked and discussed that part <laughs> more than just, you know, all the glory because it's not really about the pretty things. I don't, well, yes, I look at pretty gowns all day, something that I've created, but it to get to that point, it's a lot of daily labor and hard work to actually get to, to just sit uh, surrounded by all these pretty gowns. Yeah, there's so many pieces and parts that go into it besides the glamorous, you know, fabric and tool and, and beading side of it. Um, but, you know, clearly you're very driven and passionate about what you do, and so you find the determination to work on those things, even though they might not always be exactly what you want. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Anna. It was lovely to hear your story. And I think a lot of really valuable information shared with others out there who might be trying to start something up uh, similar to what you're doing. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. And a big shout out to my husband, Mark, who handles all of the tech and editing behind the scenes, as well as Tara, my right-hand girl, who does so, so, so much to make this show possible. I know it's easy to listen to a podcast and you think, oh, they just have an interview and they record and hit go and it's out there. There's actually a lot of pieces and parts that go into it. And Tara coordinates all of that from getting the guests scheduled and the interviews um, on my calendar to getting the graphics together and making sure they get published on Stitcher and iTunes and all the places that you might be listening. So thank you to Tara for that. And again, thank you for each of you for listening. You guys make the show possible in so many ways and your support has helped us get 
couple hundred as of the recording. We have about 200, a little over 200 reviews on Apple Podcasts, which is phenomenal. And I am so excited to have hit that 200 marker. Those reviews are like pulling teeth to get, I don't know what it is. And I have to kind of put the mirror on myself because I don't leave a lot of podcast reviews, but I've started leaving more because they're really, really valuable to podcast hosts and they're very hard to get. You know, they're very easy to leave. They honestly take 30 to 60 seconds. And um, if you do enjoy the show, I would be over the moon grateful if you could leave a podcast review on Apple Podcasts if you think we deserve that. You just scroll down if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. It's very easy, again, and really, really goes so far um, in helping out the show grow and get new listeners and build our audience. So I really appreciate that. Um, Again, you can scroll down as well to access the show notes wherever you're listening to check out Anna's website and all of her social media following and reach out and say hi and let her know how you enjoyed the interview. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you in the next episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast.